Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 the supreme court hears oral arguments on student loan cancellation can they show that the way he violated the law hurt them in some specific way the china accountability committee approved seven bills in its first meeting i haven't heard many democrats come up to me and to apologize for saying i and so many americans were spreading fringe conspiracy theories retail giant target cites theft as one of the main causes for a loss of profits. Disinflation, like the Fed is out there talking about, is not necessarily happening. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast, your first look at today's top stories for Wednesday, March 1st. I'm Mike Scott. The Supreme Court heard arguments surrounding President Biden's controversial plan of student loan debt forgiveness, which would forgive up to $20,000 in federal student loans for some borrowers and wipe away about a half trillion dollars in debt. The fight over a policy that could impact tens of millions of Americans. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments today on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. The policy seeks to cancel roughly $430 billion in student debt for about 40 million borrowers. Advocates rallied outside of the Supreme Court in support of the president's plan, but several Republicans and conservative groups are suing, saying that the policy is an overreach by the Biden administration. Biden, who had been facing mounting pressure from not only fellow Democrats, but many liberal activist groups, announced his plan back in August of last year just before the midterm elections. Andy McCarthy, a senior fellow at National Review Institute and a former assistant U.S. attorney, joined the Salem Radio Network and explained what the case facing the Supreme Court is all about. So what the case comes down to is the legal concept of standing, which is, are the states and the individuals who will bring this suit, do they have a sufficient individual injury that they can litigate this. Hmm. So it's like one of these weird things. It's like um, if you had a, if you had a sports analogy to it, like everybody knows how the game should come out. But the question is, are these guys eligible to play? McCarthy goes on to say that the key to the case is that the states suing the Biden administration have to show how his order will damage them. You can't go into court and say, I'm mad because the government is violating the law. You have to show, I'm mad because the government is violating the law and it damaged me in a way that's different from the way that it damages everybody else. Because the idea is the courts are the only part of our government that are not answerable to politics. You know, we don't, we appoint judges, we don't elect them. And if they get stuff wrong, we don't get to to vote them out of office like we do with others. So as a result, We don't want judges making public policy. Courts are supposed to be reserved for 
cases where individual Americans have suffered or individual people who have a right to be in court uh, have suffered injuries. And as far as public policy is concerned, we want that made by the political branches and the president so that when they get that wrong, we can vote them out of office. So the issue here is, did these states, are these states really in court saying we're mad because Biden's violating the law? Or can they show that the way he violated the law hurt them in some specific way that's different from others? According to the Department of Education, regardless of the court's decision, payments will resume as soon as 60 days after the latest pause ends, which is on June 30th. That means loan payments could again be required as soon as late August. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is projected now to lose her bid for re-election. We'll be rooting and praying for our next mayor to deliver uh, for the people of the city for years to come. On Tuesday, Lightfoot was far from being one of the top two vote recipients, losing out to Paul Vallis, a former Chicago Public Schools CEO, and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. During her concession speech, Lightfoot says that while she didn't win, she's grateful to the people of Chicago. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. While Lightfoot was the incumbent, polling placed her as an underdog due to her either being in a statistical tie or trailing many of her challengers, such as Paul Vallis, Brandon Johnson, and Representative Jesus Chewy Garcia. This was largely due to the perception of Lightfoot's record addressing crime in Chicago. Brian Town, who worked on the Vallis campaign, says that in speaking with Chicago residents, crime is the number one, two, and three issue. Vallis, surrounded by supporters, says that safety is the biggest issue facing Chicagoans. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. And it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. Vallis and Johnson are projected to face each other in the April 4 runoff. On Tuesday, the House Special Committee dedicated to countering China started its work with a hearing which urged lawmakers to act with urgency, saying that competition between the U.S. and China has the potential to shape life in the 21st century. Over the last few years, tensions with China have been rising with both countries enacting tariffs on many imports during former President Trump's time in office. China's belligerent response to the COVID-19 pandemic, its aggression toward Taiwan, and the recent flight of a possible spy balloon have fueled lawmakers' desire to do more to counter the Chinese government. This all comes as FBI Director Christopher Wray on Tuesday confirmed that the Bureau's report on COVID-19 origins align with a report from the Energy Department, which concludes that the pandemic began with a Chinese lab leak. 
The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, etc., who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses like COVID, uh, and the concerns that, that in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, uh, the threats that those, those could pose. Ray now says that the Chinese government has been attempting to block any investigations into the origins of COVID-19. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans, and that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for. I should add that, uh, that our work related to this continues, and there are not a whole lot of details I can share that aren't, aren't classified. I will just make the observation that the Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here, the work that we're doing, the work that our U.S. government and, and close foreign partners are doing, um, and that's unfortunate for everybody. Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas says that while he may feel vindicated by recent reports by the Energy Department, he says the real work now is to get China to pay for what they did. I knew I was right all along, as in most normal Americans who just looked at facts in front of their face and used their common sense that this virus almost certainly came from those labs in Wuhan. Uh, you won't be surprised here. I haven't heard many Democrats come up to me in the Senate yet to apologize for saying I and so many Americans were spreading fringe conspiracy theories or we were racist or nativist or, or xenophobic. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I don't see many actions from the Biden administration or the Democrats either on trying to make China pay for its wrongdoing. That's really the most important thing. It's not that I was right three years ago. It's that I remain right uh, about trying to force China to pay for the uh, millions of lives lost this virus, the businesses that were destroyed, the jobs that were lost as well um, by doing things like revoking its most favored nation trading status, banning uh, Communist Party, aligned Chinese nationals from buying our farmland, banning TikTok from our country, and many steps, other steps are long overdue. Cotton explains the damage done to people due to China's lack of transparency surrounding COVID. I do want to stress again just how much harm China inflicted on the civilized world. It, it, it's, it's hard to imagine this kind of virus uh, breaking out from, say, I don't know, Denmark or the Netherlands uh, because they have much higher safety standards. But let's say it did happen in that kind of country, uh, uh, you know, friendly, democratic, capitalist country, and they had immediately been transparent about what had happened, you know, as early as you know, late November of 2019. By the time that virus got to our shores in large numbers, you know, in February or March of 2020, we could have already realized that it was most dangerous for people who were elderly and infirm. We might have avoided um, the extended lockdowns. The Arkansas senator also says he feels that the Biden administration isn't focused on getting answers out of China. I don't fault President Trump or any governor or other executive official at any level for taking early precautions uh, against this virus when we didn't know uh, what its reproduction rate was going to be. We didn't know how deadly it was going to be for the general population. 
But as we quickly learned in March and into April that it was mostly dangerous for the elderly and firm, we should have taken very rapid action to try to get back to normal as quickly as we could. If China had been transparent from the very beginning, we might have known all that before it arrived on our shores uh, in large numbers and have avoided the worst of the economic losses, the worst of the educational losses for our kids. That's why China still has a lot to answer for. And I just don't see the commitment from the Biden administration in making it answer. The FBI and other agencies are still continuing to investigate COVID origins. The TikTok app, popular with teens, is being banned on government phones and beyond. Daybreak Insider's Norman Hall has more. The United States is ratcheting up national security concerns about TikTok, mandating that all federal employees delete the Chinese-owned social media app from government-issued mobile phones. Congress, the White House, U.S. Armed Forces, and more than half of U.S. states have banned TikTok amid concerns that its parent company, ByteDance, would give user data such as browsing history and location to the Chinese government or push propaganda and misinformation on its path. The company questioned the ban, saying it has not been given an opportunity to answer questions and that governments are cutting themselves off from a platform beloved by millions. I'm Norman Hall. On Tuesday, a shocking report from the Marshall Project and Murder Accountability Project was released and suggests over the past four decades that nearly half of all homicide cases in the U.S. have gone unsolved. It's an alarming number considering that cleared cases or solved murder cases were at 71% in 1980, plummeting to 54% in 2020. The U.S. is on track to be the first developed nation where the majority of murders are unsolved. Last year, only 51% of homicides were solved. That's according to the national clearance rate. This means at least one suspect was arrested and charged for a crime. But now we're seeing a dramatic decline in cleared cases compared to previous decades. Thomas Hargrove is with the Murder Accountability Project and says the biggest issue is that local police are underfunded and, as a result, do not have the manpower to investigate homicides. First, um, we are underfunding police. Uh, we have given inadequate resources to um, properly fund uh, local police departments. There are not enough homicide detectives, not enough trained detectives, not enough forensic uh, technicians to go to crime scenes, not enough laboratory capacities. We simply lack uh, the necessary um, resources to properly investigate major crimes. Hargrove lays out the ways he believes murder has changed over the years. There are other factors. Murder has changed. Uh, 40, 50 years ago, the average murder victim was white. Now the average murder victim is African-American uh, and more than likely to be in urban areas, which are uh, places where uh, clearance rates are much lower. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this, but it is a truly alarming trend that um, right now about 54% of homicides are cleared, mm -hmm. and that could drop even further in coming years. Hargrove also says that a contributing factor is that many cities are simply broke and can't afford to support law enforcement. 
thank heavens for dumb bad guys. Uh, no, killers are not getting smarter. Uh, it's just that we, uh, we're in a war when you think of uh, homicide as a, a conflict, and um, we don't have enough boots on the ground. Uh, we simply don't have the capacity to properly investigate major crimes. That's it in a nutshell. Uh, we need to more fully fund police. The problem is most cities are broke. Yeah. Tax prices have not kept up with the demand for services. And so there's been this slow starvation of law enforcement. Responding to that report, many law enforcement sources cite a shortage of experienced homicide detectives as the main driving force behind plummeting rates in solved murder cases. According to Target's CFO, inventory shrinkage, that is items that are lost, stolen, or damaged, was a large problem, not only for Target, but for other retail stores as well. In fact, Target CEO Brian Cornell stated that the stores have seen a significant increase in theft and well-organized retail crime resulting in the company taking steps in investing in training and technology to deter theft. Reports suggest that goods stolen from stores led to $94.5 billion in losses in 2021, up from $90.8 billion in 2020. That, according to a late 2022 study by the National Retail Federation. Yahoo Finance's Brian Sozi says that while Target shares are up, the company is still warning about tough times ahead. Interesting quarter here from Target. So a big earnings beat here, uh, Julian Brad, but they warned, they warned on the first quarter and really warned by more than a dollar in terms of full year profits. Lots of different, different moving pieces. Chief amongst those is a more cautious consumer. Target CFO says that on top of shrinkage being an issue, inflation is hitting the retail giant's bottom line. Our guests continue to pick Target more and more often. Within that top-line performance, we saw a consumer that was you know, feeling the impacts of inflation. Our strongest categories were categories like food and beverage, essentials, and beauty. And we saw slower trends in the categories like apparel and home and hard lines. So for us, that includes electronics and toys and things like that. And so a consumer that's feeling the impacts of inflation but importantly, they're finding incredible value at Target. They're responding to newness, and we have it on the floor pad, and that drove a traffic growth uh, for us in the quarter. Sozi echoes Target's chief financial officer by saying that retail reports are suggesting that buyers still are not seeing any cooling in inflation, and their purchases are reflecting that. Another uh, top executive telling us that disinflation like the Fed is out there talking about, is not necessarily happening. These companies are still dealing with high levels of inflation in their supply chain and their customer base still dealing with high levels of inflation and perhaps going to a Target, not buying those uh, five pairs of pants, reinvesting that money that would have went on pants into some cans of soup. The increased amount of theft has caused retailers to take additional measures, such as hiring more security guards and locking up easy-to-shoplift items, notably household essentials, such as toothpaste. 
The Commerce Department is opening the application process for computer chip manufacturers to access 39 billion taxpayer dollars in government support to build new factories and expand production. Daybreak Insider's Jeremy House has the very latest on the status of new chip manufacturing in the United States. The funding is part of the Chips and Science Act, which President Biden signed into law last August. The money will be available as grants, loans, and loan guarantees. The effort is aimed at minimizing the kinds of supply chain disruptions that occurred in 2021 when a shortage of chips shut down factory assembly lines and fueled inflation. For the man behind gene-edited babies, it is a rocky return to science. We get more from our Daybreak Insider, Charles de la Desma. After serving three years in a Chinese prison for practicing medicine without a license, he faces obstacles as he tries to re-enter the science world. For months, has been touting plans to develop affordable gene therapies for rare sciences. Also announcing on social media last fall he'd opened a lab in Beijing. And last week, he said he'd received a Hong Kong visa and might want to work in the financial hub. But officials there revoked the visa hours later, saying false statements had been made and a criminal probe would be launched. I'm Charles de la Desma. And finally, Carol Bolin of Tinmouth, Vermont, was recently given a gift that was truly a family treasure. Over 80 years ago, her parents wrote love letters to each other during World War II while her father was serving in the U.S. Navy. After the war, Bolin's parents saved their letters in their Staten Island home. However, Bolin's father died in 1974, and then the family moved to Vermont. Years later, Dottie Kearney and her husband purchased the Bolin New York home, and during renovations on Staten Island, they discovered the handwritten letters behind a wall. It took some time, but Kearney was able to track down Bolin and return her the letters that her parents wrote to each other. Bolin says that after receiving the package of letters from Kearney, she sat down with a friend and they read the letters together out loud. We'll make up for lost time. It's all for you, honey. No one but you will ever occupy my heart or get my passionate love. But you, I'll always be faithful because you're so, so sweet and lovely. Well, darling, I will be in my bunk soon. Lights out at taps. You know, all I have you in my pleasant dreams. My, we have relived many happy hours in my dreams. I always enjoy it. It's nice to have you with me, my sweet love. There goes a nice juicy kiss for only you, my love. God bless you and keep you safe. Love, Lord. While text and emails have all but replaced the art of the handwritten note today, Bolin says that letter writing forever will not be lost on her. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider Podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. 
ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at srnnews.com and townhall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott.